Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This episode is brought to you by Paul of Switzerland for his generous donation to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. This one is for you. Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 53, The Rulers of Foreign Lands. This episode is a special episode, one I've been looking forward to for a long time. It is a watershed moment in the history of Egypt, and we'll be feeling the repercussions of it for many episodes to come. In 1650 BCE, Egypt was divided into two separate kingdoms. In the north, a dynasty of Canaanite Egyptian kings had taken control of the delta. They governed in tandem with native Egyptians, and managed their affairs in a traditional Egyptian manner. For all intents and purposes, they were Egyptian kings in their own right, they just had a slightly different set of cultural decorations. In the south, The Kingdom of Upper Egypt was governed from Memphis to Elephantine. They were the political successors of the Middle Kingdom, but they were a poor shadow at best. Over the course of just 150 years, they had lost control of territories in Nubia, abandoned the fortresses there, and managed to lose their authority in the Delta itself. Not a good look. The two kingdoms coexisted without too much trouble. They traded, and officials of the south were able to pass through the north on their way to Byblos and communities in Syria. All in all, it was the best that could be hoped for from a country divided in two. But then things began to go south, and they did so very quickly. The peace was not broken by anyone in Egypt. Instead, this period marked a sudden shift in the history of the country, when, for the first time in, well, ever, Egypt was invaded from the outside. A new people from previously unknown lands swept into the country from the east. By crossing the Sinai Peninsula, they came to the kingdom of the Delta, and in an aggressive onslaught, subjugated its rulers and took over its centres. These people are known as the Hyksos, and they are Egypt's greatest calamity. Or at least, that's what the ancient Egyptians would have us believe. What follows is their version of the story. For about 500 years after the Hyksos invasion, the Egyptian kings maintained a very strict political and ideological narrative on the situation. According to them, the country had been invaded by godless heathens, who smote the people, burned the temples, and established an illegitimate dynasty in the northern regions of the country. 
As we will see later on, this view might need to be revised a bit, but it's always good to understand the Egyptian attitude towards these events. This was an attitude created in an atmosphere of war, and bears all the hallmarks you might expect. The Egyptian stories are xenophobic, and they are extremely fond of demonising their foes, and they accept no responsibility for the situation that transpired. Let's start with the classical narrative, the account of the Egyptian historian Manetho. Quote, In the reign of King Tutamaios, for what cause I know not, a blast of God smote us, and, unexpectedly from the regions of the east, invaders of obscure race marched in confidence of victory against our land. By main force they easily overpowered the rulers of the land. They then burned our cities ruthlessly, raised to the ground the temples of the gods, and treated all the natives with a cruel hostility, massacring some and leading into slavery the wives and children of others. Finally, they appointed as king one of their number, whose name was Salitus. End quote. Manetho wrote his history of Egypt somewhere around 250 BCE, and he usually gets a lot of the details wrong. But his version seems to be based on what ancient Egyptians accepted was the truth of the tale, and based on this, older historians have reconstructed the Hyksos invasion as follows. Somewhere around 1650 BCE, give or take a decade or two, the delta was invaded by these new peoples. They swept in, kicked out the ruling Canaanite dynasty, and set up a new kingdom in its place. They marched in sufficiently great numbers to easily overpower the existing kingdom, with the result that they actually expanded further south than the Canaanites had done. From Avaris down to Memphis, their troops were victorious and eventually the Hyksos came to control all of the north. For the moment, let's say that's all 100% true, just for the moment. Where did the Hyksos come from? Who were they? And why did they suddenly decide to invade a country that had never been invaded before? Well, the Hyksos came from Arabia or the Levant. No one is exactly sure where. What we do know is that their language seems to have been a common ancestor to modern Arabic and Hebrew, an ancient language that we call West Semitic. If that is the case, it means they probably came from the region of, well, the Arabs and the Hebrews, so anywhere between Yemen and Syria is possible really. Apart from that, it's a bit of a mystery. The Hyksos were probably nomadic, and later writers referred to them as shepherd kings. But the Egyptians did not give the people a specific name, and instead referred to their kings as Heka Kasut. This translates to rulers of foreign lands, and by the time Manetho was writing, Heka Kasut had slowly morphed into Hyksos. So that's how we get the term. Still, it's not the most useful description. Oh hey, there's a bunch of foreigners living in the delta, and they've got, like, a king and everything. What do we call him? Uh, how about ruler of foreign lands? Okay, but he lives in Egypt. Doesn't matter. Go with that. So the Hyksos are a group of West Semitic speakers, from a land to the east of Egypt, and now they live in the delta and control its major towns. Why did they invade? I think you could call the invasion a crime of opportunity. 
When the Hyksos migrated into the Sinai, they found Egypt's eastern borders pretty much undefended. The fortresses that were built in the Middle Kingdom had now fallen into decay, and the Canaanite rulers had not yet restored them. On top of that, the delta was only 50 years removed from a period of devastating famine and plague. There had been a terrible loss of life in the delta, and that kind of devastation can be difficult for populations to recover from, even a few generations later. So when the Hyksos arrived, they found the delta weakened and ripe for the taking. What a lovely day that must have been. The invasion swept into the delta aggressively, and the Canaanite rulers simply could not stand up to the pressure. Very quickly they were sidelined in their own kingdom, and subjugated to the point that they became vassal princes of the invaders. If the Hyksos had stopped there, the Egyptians might have forgotten the issue relatively quickly, but then they went further and attacked the city of Memphis. Memphis was no longer the administrative capital that it had once been. Cities like Ichtawi, Avaris, and Thebes were more important now. But Memphis had something else. It had prestige, on a level no other city could claim. There was the Temple of Re at Heliopolis, and the Temple of Ta in Memphis itself. Massively important temples, worth their weight in gold. There were obelisks and statues, and the monuments of great rulers of the Old Kingdom. And, most importantly, there were tombs. Memphis was attached to cemeteries with importance we simply cannot fathom today. Giza, Dashur, Abusir, and Saqqara were now all in the Hyksos' hands, which meant that the sacred relics of Egypt's most famous kings were now at risk. They were in the hands of people who had no connection with Egyptian heritage, could not be expected to respect the traditions, and, worst of all, might even plunder the tombs. Something had to be done. Unfortunately, the Canaanite rulers were subjugated, and the Egyptian kings of Upper Egypt were in no position to fight back. Memphis is only 100 kilometers north of Ichitawi, the capital of the 12th and early 13th dynasties. But the kings of Upper Egypt had abandoned Ichitawi as a residence, and moved their court back to the south, to Thebes. This was all well and good for them, it probably saved the royal household from being attacked immediately. But it also meant that they were too far away to mount an effective defence, and the Hyksos seemed to have taken the city of Memphis pretty easily. Then, to cap it all off, the Hyksos added insult to injury, and decided to use Memphis as a temporary capital. Manetho tells us, quote, King Salitus had his seat at Memphis, levying tribute from Upper and Lower Egypt, and leaving garrisons behind in the most advantageous positions. In the delta, he found a city very favourably situated on the east of the Nile, called Avaris. This place he rebuilt and fortified with massive walls, planting there a garrison of as many as 240,000 heavily armed men to guard his frontier. Here he would come in summertime, partly to serve out rations and pay his troops, partly to train them carefully in manoeuvres, and so strike terror into foreign tribes. End quote. The Hyksos were essentially military rulers, at least in this early period. They didn't have much interest in changing the fundamentals of Egyptian society, or imposing their own culture. After all, it wasn't a broken system, so why change it? Instead, they focused on what they were good at. 
and Manetho's account seems to be relatively accurate in some of its points. The city of Avaris did grow rapidly around 1650 onwards, and the population of non-Egyptians grew even faster. In fact, archaeological evidence even suggests that non-native Egyptians living throughout the country actually migrated to Avaris around this period. The population grew rapidly, the city was fortified, making it much safer than it had been. So the new rulers were doing something right, setting themselves up in charge of the administration, but not messing with it too much. They focused on their strengths, and that's had some benefits for historians trying to reconstruct the Hexos kingdom. The Hexos were surprisingly skilled rulers, given their nomadic background, and they were not cruel masters. They continued to use the Egyptian language for government, and native Egyptians show up in the Hyksos administration as important ministers, working alongside foreigners. So an Egyptian named Per M. Hesut, the overseer of things which are sealed, worked alongside the Hyksos Upper Baal, also overseer of things which are sealed. And the Egyptian Sen Ankh, keeper of cloth, could work in the palace alongside Iam, keeper of the chamber and cupbearer. The accumulated records of Hexos administration, such as they are, tell us that they ran a multi-ethnic government, where Asiatics, Egyptians, and even the occasional Nubian worked together in service of the kings. On top of this, the Hexos were religiously inclusive. Hexos kings embellished the temples of the Egyptian gods, as well as the Canaanite ones like Baal or Asherah. They left the population in peace, and life continued as normal. For all intents and purposes, life under the Hyksos probably wasn't too different from life under the Egyptian kings. So why did the Egyptians consider it such a catastrophe? It was a pretty big deal when the Hyksos captured Memphis. That had never happened before. Although there had been wars in the past, those were civil wars between native Egyptians. Never before had a foreign group actually taken control of Egyptian lands. Now, they were in charge of one of the most sacred spaces in the country. For the Egyptian kings living in Thebes, this was a terrible blow to prestige. Their power in the north was broken, and they could not maintain trade routes with their vassals in Syria. Essentially, they were now cut off from the north altogether, and isolated within their own country. All things considered, the Hyksos weren't so bad in terms of economic or social stability, but they were a devastating interruption in Egypt's traditional view of the universe. That view held that the king, servant of Ma'at, was the supreme being on earth, and his rule was one mandated by the divine. Egypt itself was supreme among peoples and kingdoms, and was beloved of the gods. They had even proved this to themselves when they conquered Nubia, and subjugated a few of the coastal towns in Syria. So this new development was a bit, well, confusing. There had to be some explanation, right? Manetho blamed the loss of Egyptian pride and the invasion as a whole on one simple factor. The gods had abandoned Egypt and withdrawn their support for the legitimate kings. The Hyksos was some kind of divine punishment for an unknown crime, and the country as a whole paid the price. Well... That's one way to save face, especially when you're writing centuries after the fact. But to the Egyptians of the day, the event was a catastrophe, and one that had to be fixed as quickly as possible. But what really could they do? 
No one is sure what happened during the early days of the invasion, but when the dust had settled, there was one dominant problem facing the kings of Thebes. Should they fight, or should they submit? There is still some debate about the idea that the Egyptian kings might have actually submitted to the rule of the Hyksos, and become vassals of the new dynasty. That is what Manetho tells us in his narrative. He says that Salitus, the first Hyksos king, levied tribute from Lower and Upper Egypt, and left garrisons where he felt they were necessary. Now that sounds pretty close to a general occupation. The Hyksos might have left the kings of Thebes in power, but it sounds like these kings were their subjects, offering tribute to them and accepting a garrison of foreign soldiers. As you can imagine, that's pretty tough for many Egyptologists to swallow. We are a sentimental bunch, and no one likes to accept the fact that the favourite civilization might have, at any point, been completely subjugated by another, especially when they had been doing so well just a couple of centuries earlier. But it's entirely possible that during the initial decades of the Hyksos period, the Theban kings recognised that they were outmatched, and decided not to push the issue. We can tell this because archaeologists have found items throughout southern Egypt which bear the names of, you guessed it, Hexos kings. This suggests that after the initial invasion, the Egyptians in the south recognised that they couldn't simply beat the Hexos, and decided to play ball. So, around 1650 BCE, Egypt's once mighty kingdom had crumbled indeed, and the kings of Upper and Lower Egypt became nothing more than the princes of Thebes. Paying tribute to the foreign rulers of Avaris, and accepting their rule as a horrible but insurmountable situation, the rulers became the ruled, and Egypt was subdued. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As usual, there are two versions of the Hexos story. The traditional narrative, written by the ancients and subject to all of their prejudices and desires, and the modern narrative, written by people far removed, digging in the dirt, and trying to reconstruct the puzzle from a mixture of material evidence and our own 21st century prejudices and desires. In the traditional story, the Hexos were invaders of a barbaric foreign nature, they slaughtered Egyptians, burned temples, and subjugated the country under their rule. They were vicious, they were cruel, and worst of all, they were not Egyptian. Such narratives are fascinating, and will forever be a part of the Hyksos story. But the archaeologists working in this material are spinning a very different image of the period, and our understanding is now much different from Manetho's day. For starters, the Hyksos clearly were not barbaric rulers. 
They incorporated Egyptians into their administration, made contributions to the temples of Egyptian gods, and helped improve the defences of the delta at a critical time. That's a pretty minor point to put aside. The bigger question, one that is still a matter of debate among historians, is whether there even was a quote-unquote invasion. Egyptologist Charlotte Booth, whose book The Hyksos Period in Egypt I am using as one of my references, wrote the following summary in 2005. Quote, Although they were a nation of warriors, there seems to be little evidence that the Hyksos staged a violent takeover. The variations between the pottery of the Canaanite 14th and the Hyksos 15th dynasties are subtle and suggest a peaceful changeover in political leadership. Any style change can be attributed to the personal ambitions of a new king. End quote. Both, and many historians today, wonder if the Canaanite 14th dynasty and the Hyksos 15th dynasty might be more closely connected than Manetho would have you think. Based on how little change there is in the archaeological material, with no evidence for battlefields or devastation in Egyptian cities, many suspect that the story of an invasion is just that, a story. Here at the Egyptian History Podcast, we've stuck with the traditional version, because it's the one most people know. But I think we've made the point that the story itself is probably greatly exaggerated. Certainly some parts of it are fictitious. The most obvious example for this is the really long-standing idea that the Hyksos defeated Egypt because they were wielding a new kind of weapon, the chariot. The chariot is a swift, two-wheeled contraption hooked up by a pair of horses. It is used for transporting leaders and archers to enable quick movement on the battlefield and bombarding the enemy at different points. It shows up in many cultures of the time, but it's most famously associated with the Egyptians, who used the chariot in the New Kingdom as their elite weapon of war. Other notable examples include the Hittite war chariots, used to devastating effect in carving out an empire in Syria, and the chariots used at Troy, where Achilles supposedly dragged the body of Hector behind his chariot around the walls of the city. As usual, scholars are arguing over whether the Hyksos actually introduced the chariot, or if it was already known to the Egyptians. For one thing, excavations at Avaris and other Hyksos areas have yet to find any evidence of the chariot much less a chariot used in war. So that part of the story seems to be a myth. The chariot came to Egypt for sure, but it came at a different time and in a different way, a way that we do not yet know. Another fictitious element is the idea that the Hyksos burned and slaughtered their way through Egypt. That is almost certainly a figment of Manetho's imagination, or legends of later periods. Archaeologists haven't found any evidence for such destruction, either in the form of mass graves or destruction layers in Egyptian settlements. The last point, and my personal favourite, is Manetho's bizarre explanation for why the Hyksos was so keen to invade. Quote, Above all, King Salitas fortified the district to the east, foreseeing that the Assyrians, as they grew stronger, would one day covet and attack his kingdom. End quote. Manetho is straight up wrong here. The Assyrians will not be relevant to Egypt's history for another 1,000 years. 
What Manetho has done, essentially, is transplant something that was relatively recent when he was writing the Neo-Assyrian Empire onto the past. It's a corruption of history that I quite like, even if I find it frustrating. Unable to fathom why the Hyksos would be so keen to fortify Avaris, maybe because they were conquerors? I don't know, just a thought. Manetho attributes their motivations to fear of foreign powers. It is odd at best and inexplicable at worst. It's like deciding for no good reason that your new science fiction film would be so much better if somehow C-3PO had been built by the kid that became Darth Vader, which seems like a stretch of coincidence and doesn't really work and... wait, I'm getting off topic. As we wrap up the episode, Egypt is in some dire straits. The Hyksos rule the north, from Avaris to Memphis. They have defeated the Canaanite kings of Dynasty 14 and reduced the Egyptian kings of Thebes to the status of vassals. They take tribute from the whole country, and even rule over the most sacred spaces in Memphis and its necropolis. All things considered, the situation is bad. The problem, as we're going to see next episode, is that the Hyksos are not the only problem facing the kings of Thebes. After all, they've forgotten about another kingdom, a kingdom that has been growing steadily more powerful, a kingdom they used to rule, a kingdom to the south, a kingdom that is now ready to make its mark on history. You see, an old foe has returned to power. The Nubians of Kush are back, and they're ready for war. Coming up next time on the Egyptian History Podcast. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money.